Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Eric Taylor, the founder and CEO of Trident, a private equity firm focused on acquiring U.S.-based small businesses. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm great. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Thanks for asking. So, Eric, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what inspired you to start your investment firm? Sure. Um, you know, I'm I'm the 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 son of immigrants. My uh, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, but grew up really all over the country: uh, East Baltimore, St. Croix, the U.S. Virgin Islands, Southern Texas. You know, did boarding school in New England, and I, I think that exposed me to uh, the fact that value comes from all different walks of life and all different parts of this country. And when I actually started my investing career at Goldman Sachs after Harvard, um, moved on to a firm called Brightwood Capital, where I specifically focused on small business investing, the idea of creating Trident came about uh, because I saw the gap, right? Like I saw the value growing up. I saw how folks in big cities sometimes didn't understand that there's value in these flyover parts of the country. And then when I started building, actually investing Acumen, you know, you know, live and direct, I was able to actually pair those two experiences to come up with the idea for Trident. So, you know, you nailed it. We uh, buy and sell small businesses and we've got a really unique sourcing strategy that prioritizes partnering with local entrepreneurs, um, uh, local operators, to help us see around corners because you can get the macro right. You know, you can say, hey, I think that this sector, this area of the country is going to grow. But if you don't get the people right, if you don't get the micro right, uh, you can still, uh, as it turns out, not have a, a really successful outcome. So we've had to spend a little bit more time on both, but I think the result is that we've built a, a really sustainable mousetrap. Appreciate that. And for those who aren't too familiar with private equity, I kind of mean you kind of like explained it. You're you're purchasing small businesses, but can you demystify what private equity is and kind of walk us through your approach to it? Sure. You know, it, it's it's really simple. Um, not to to give an investing one hundred and one, but but the value of any asset is uh, its future cash flows. And so I don't care if it's a building that's spitting off rent, um, a, a, a business that is spitting off cash, or, you know, the example I always like to use is, you know, two young children manning a lemonade stand. Um, at the end of the day, there's going to be a number of assets that have to go into building that stand. There's going to have to be a number of, of goods, you know, limes, lemon, sugar, water, whatever it is that go into actually producing the lemonade. And then at the end of the day, if it's a good, solid, profitable business, um, there's going to be a dollar amount of profit that comes out. At the end of the day, we as private equity businesses, our job is to distinguish between the most profitable, the most sustainable businesses that have really great opportunities for growth and businesses that might just be a flash in the pan. And through a series of analytical techniques, through uh, you know, actually visiting these companies and kicking the tires, just spending inordinate amounts of time, you know, dozens of hours uh, building insight into these businesses, 
we determine what businesses we want to make majority control investments in and, and maybe ones that, hey, now's not the right time. Hmm. The beauty of private equity is that our job is to be business builders. And so although we're coming with financial capital, the, the other part of what we do is post-transaction value creation. That means after I write a check, I've actually got a team of folks internally that fly out to that company and work with that business to grow. And so whether it's opening up additional locations, whether it's trying to figure out the, uh, uh, you know, how to unlock a labor shortage, whether it's trying to source raw materials that are better and cheaper, whether it's trying to find new customers, we have a hand in all those things to make all the businesses in our portfolio that we buy much better for it. And it's important to remember the companies that we're buying by the very nature of the fact that they're small businesses, they're family owned. And so while on one hand we're assisting a family with what oftentimes is a generational transition, you know, on the other hand, these businesses haven't had a lot of exposure um, to the infrastructure that we bring to bear. And what we found is that that's a boon for us, that that's a big opportunity for us to not only differentiate, but also, you know, actually help businesses grow, you know, revenues, employee count, et cetera, all the key indicators that you would want to see uh, that, that are the, I think, key components of a successful investment. Interesting. And when it comes to identifying the assets and potential acquisitions, what factors are the most important in your decision making process? We look at a number of different things, right? Some are financial metrics, growth. You know, is this business in a dying industry or is it in a growing industry? Um, even if it's in an industry that's flat, is this an opportunity or product? that has the ability to take share, or is it going to be losing share? What does the competitive landscape look like? Um, we look at profitability and margin, right? For every dollar of revenue you take in, how many dollars of cost did you have to pay in order to create that dollar of revenue? You know, if, you, if you're taking in a dollar of revenue, but it costs you $99 to produce that dollar of revenue, that's often not that, that's off that, that's not going to be a business that we take a close look at because it means there's too small of a margin of safety if anything goes wrong with that dollar revenue or it doesn't come you're still on the hook for 99 cents of cost um so so growth margin profitability uh we look at the company's ability to produce cash at the end of the day so those are the sort of financial metrics that we pay attention to Okay. But at the end of the day, the reason I invested in, you know, time and building a rapport in private equity as opposed to anything else is because these assets aren't just assets, it's people. At the end of the day, a company is just a bunch of people um, who have decided to center themselves around a mission. Um, and some missions are good, some missions are bad, some missions, you know, we might be indifferent to. But there's something really beautiful about a thousand people or 10,000 people, or even just 10 people all agreeing to come to work every day in order to produce something great. 
And my job, and as well as navigating the financial part of this, right, understanding the financial piece, is trying to understand those people. You know, how do they work together? What are the standard operating procedures that they've put together? What's the morale of this group, right? You know, are they just coming to work every day, or do they have something bigger uh, that they're really chasing after? Um, is there a central point of pride in this that they're all after? Uh, what does this mean to them? Um, what you'll find is that with small businesses, you can have really great idiosyncratic outcomes. That means I've got a business in my portfolio that, you know, we've been able to increase EBITDA, sort of a function for, for uh, profitability, by five times in under two years. Great outcome, right? But outcomes like that only occur when you've got a group of people who are smart, talented, passionate, focused on a centralized mission, um, and also thinking about something a little bit bigger than themselves. And discerning that, figuring that out, unpacking that is maybe one of the most challenging parts of my day-to-day -day job, but, but also one of the best parts of it right because getting to know people is is really really why i'm in this business and the better i can do that quite literally the better uh outcomes i will create for my limited partners and and, and obviously for for my team sure thanks for that and could you elaborate on why your firm has a specific emphasis on black owned businesses as part of your efforts to reduce the wealth gap well well we're a black owned business um, and, and I don't think that this is all that complicated. At the end of the day, the black population is about 13% of the country. But, um, you know, when it comes to wealth, when it comes to business ownership, we index way below where we should. And so there's this perennial question of how to fix that. We actually have two different approaches to this. You know, on one hand, apples to apples, we're going to work and prioritize doing business with people who are black and brown doing business with people who are where there's gender or racial diversity we just think it's good business and they're they're frankly better opportunities to get apples to apples to be found hmm. but i don't think that that's where this idea of closing the racial wealth gap should stop I think the notion that you can take 13% of the population, the obvious minority, um, and a group of people who have even less wealth as you know, given their percentage of the population, and have the idea that they can rely on themselves to somehow pull themselves up by their bootstraps and fix this massive gap that's been created over hundreds of years, I think it's ridiculous, frankly. Um, only investing in Black-owned businesses isn't going to do it. Uh, the reality is that all businesses in this country need to reframe how they think about interacting with black and brown people as employees, with black and brown people as leaders, and with black and brown people as business owners. And we think we're playing a, a real part in that. Hmm. We're trying to be a thought leader in the space, but we're not just a, a, a think shop, we're a think and do shop. And that means when we're buying businesses, 
you know, we're not just saying, why don't we increase the racial diversity of the employee base? We're saying, hey, this business buys XYZ raw materials. Are there any black owned businesses we can source these raw materials from? You know, if I pulled out my business credit card right now, I know, you know, everybody loves using Amex corporate cards, but we use a black owned bank down in Louisiana called Liberty Bank. These things matter because I know that every dollar that these businesses spend, every dollar that they deposit in the bank, there are black and brown owned alternatives for where those dollars can go. And every single time you divert a dollar to a black and brown alternative, we know the positive impact that it has in that community and the positive impact that it has in actually closing the racial wealth gap. So that's our focus. But you'll notice that none of this is just purely altruistic. I'm doing this because it's good business, hmm. right? When I said, hey, where else can I buy raw materials from? I never intended to say we're going to pay more for worse product. But the reality is black and brown folks make really good products too. We got good banks too. We've got great employees too. And I think the crisis isn't that there's not enough supply of black owned businesses that can compete. The crisis is rather that people aren't paying attention, that there's institutionalized bias that um, when, when viewed systematically prevents folks from getting out of the starting blocks. Um, and, you know, I, I always think about my parents, like my dad, if my dad went to go buy a suit or something, he'd look for the black sales attendant to give him a look. And that's kind of how we think about doing business, right? Kind of like my dad. Um, it doesn't mean that we're gonna buy a worse suit, right? Doesn't mean that we're not gonna get the same sale as, as what you know the store might be offering. Doesn't mean that we're gonna get worse service. It just means that we know that this group of people in particular are less considered than others. And all too often where that exists, we find opportunity. And that's why we choose to give folks a look. We'll make money while doing it and it's the right thing to do. Got it. And earlier you mentioned about where basically the flow of money and you putting it in a black owned bank when it comes to, I guess, how money is controlled and the flow of capital, like what are your thoughts on how the current financial your thoughts on the current financial system and what changes would you like to see in terms of capital allocation and the control and the flow of capital well you, you know look I, i'm not um i'm not an economist and so i think there's so much about the basic economics and flow of capital that i don't understand but one thing I do know is that I believe the next group of, you know, very wealthy families in this country will have been created because of private equity. Um, the power and potential of this industry to not only generate great returns um, and return of cash for limited partners, but obviously uh, capital for the individuals that take part is is unbelievable and if you look at major contributions to 
causes that support black and brown people. What you're seeing is that a lot of those contributions are starting to come from people who are black and from people who are coming out of the investment management industry. And so one thing that, you know, we've been really focused on is the fact that despite capital in this country is controlled by or really owned by a very diverse population. The reality is that the folks who manage that capital profit from it tend to be monolithic in nature. And this isn't me talking. This is there have been multiple studies in particular by the Knight Foundation uh, that have sort of lambasted the lack of diversity in an industry um, where we know if we can make these small changes percentage points. Um, it'll be major difference for the wealth creation for families and in turn the wealth creation for these communities. And so the question is, how do you come up with a solution where, uh, you know, for instance, teachers in this country or firefighters or police officers who have large pensions, teachers aren't largely going to be white and male. And yet, if you look at the amount of capital that they have and who it's managed by, that capital tends to be managed by people who are white and male. And so there's an obvious disconnect. And the only there could only be a couple reasons for the disconnect. Either one, there aren't any managers who are not white and male who are available or qualified enough to manage that capital, right? obviously would disagree with that. I think there's plenty of managers or there's institutional bias and there have been gates that have been set up to make it so that it's harder for those two sides to communicate, right? That 45 year old black woman who's a teacher in name your state um, and the money that, you know, will eventually accrue to her pension. There's no connectivity between these two groups of folks. And I think whoever can figure out that equation, which by the way, I think it's a political question. I think that this is frankly, one of the most important civil rights issues of our generation. Whoever can figure that out, I think is going to make a lot of great change uh, for, minor for minority communities in this country. You can see entire swaths of tuition for classes at HBCUs being paid off. You've seen donations to HBCUs, HBCUs you know, paid off. You've seen um, uh, uh, donations to uh, healthcare, you know, you know, prostate cancer foundation, but donations that are specific for black and brown people come from these entrepreneurs and their families. I think there's a lot of good to be done from diversifying and frankly, really normalizing the way that money flows to be more inclusive. Uh, and frankly, I think that's good for everybody. I think that's good for the country. Um, and I think it's particular do, you're particularly good for, for uh, populations of people who are uh, uh, you know, underpenetrated and most deserving. Thank you. And could you describe your experience raising capital as a fund manager? How easy has that been? You know, I think anybody who's raised capital would say the same thing. It's not easy. And the main reason it's not easy is because you end up with this perennial chicken or egg problem. 
anybody who wants to give you capital at the end of the day they want to see what you've done with the last capital that you got right you know how happy you know if i'm going to give you money well who's the last person that gave you money and how'd you do with it and this is one of those things where if you build a track record over time you've got a great answer for that well out over the last 20 years here you know here's who gave me money here's how institutional they are and here's what i did with it and while uh historical returns are not a predictor of future ones i, I think it certainly helps to show the ability to build infrastructure inconsistency so that's what people who are giving allocating capital look for but how do you get started <laughs> you know that that's where the chicken and egg problem comes and so i think for anybody looking to raise money whether in the court you know in the form of funds or spvs or just money to acquire a, a, it could be a donut shop um just know that what you're going to have to face is this chicken or egg problem and there are many ways to circumvent it you can think about showing your expertise within that subsector. Hey, maybe I haven't raised capital before, but let me connect the dots for you on why I can build businesses. And so when given the opportunity, right, given the opportunity to be entrepreneurial, given the opportunity to acquire something, while I haven't raised capital before, what I have done is this. And really, although you, you care about me raising capital, what you really care, is my ability to, care about is my ability to operate. Um, you want to lead into the fact that you might have some sort of unfair subsector advantage. You know, you know things that others don't. You have insight into things that others don't. You have relationships that others don't. What makes you special? Um, and if you can figure out how to, how to, in a cogent, you know, intelligent, compelling way, convey that. I think those are the folks who tend to do better raising capital, um, you know, notwithstanding the fact that that they're also in, in pretty much every case that I've seen for in particular for minority ma managers, uh, really great operators. Got it. And can you share your perspective on the current state of the three sectors that your firm specializes in, namely industrial, uh, consumer and healthcare? Sure. You know, um, we chose three sectors that all in all actually encompass maybe 70, 80% of the American economy. And so that seems like a lot, but when you think about the types of businesses that we invest in, those businesses tend to be small. And the problems that small businesses face in this country, when you think about access to capital, when you think about ability to build infrastructure, when you think about financial controls, when you think about exposure to diversified customer bases, when you think about exposure to a diversified set of uh, 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 suppliers, when you think about contracts, those things actually tend to be similar. And so although we cover three different sectors, what we've done internally here at Trident is developed a rubric or an approach for how to build businesses that are small. And then we apply it and overlay it onto these three sectors.
And again, we tend to find that the problems between sectors actually tend to be somewhat similar. But here's what's going on in, in the sectors that we focus on. We've been spending a lot of time in healthcare. Uh, I myself, um, I'm the son of a doctor. I, I grew up in the healthcare world and really idolizing it. I wanted to be a doctor before I wanted to go into private equity. And we've thought a lot about the two big themes going on in healthcare right now. One, healthcare is being consolidated. You're seeing hospital systems start to merge. You're seeing outpatient clinic systems start to merge. You're seeing dentists and optometrists who had sort of their own single shingle starting to be acquired by larger conglomerates. Um, the other big theme is that healthcare to some extent is moving outside of the hospital. Even things like emergency rooms, right? You're seeing urgent care clinics where the reality is that most emergency room visits are not life-threatening. Hmm. And so, you know, somebody might have a turtle bite on their thumb, you know, they're probably not going to need CPR and paddles. And so going to an urgent care clinic where they can get sutured and, and gauze and stitches and all that stuff is actually cheaper than going into a hospital. Hmm. So we're taking advantage of what we see as the big themes happening in healthcare right now. One way in which we've done it is an optometry. We've got a portfolio company that uh, alongside some really great operating partners we've been building. Um, and we're, we're looking at a number of different sectors now. Podiatry, cardiology is a big one, very, very hot right now. Uh, we're seeing the rapid growth of outpatient-based labs or ambulatory surgical centers uh, where the same procedures that you're used to seeing done in hospitals with C-arms and sedation, et cetera, are now being done in office-based environments. So um, that's one thing that we're focused on. Uh, healthcare services, rolling up small businesses, combining them into one larger one. Uh, and we think the intrinsic value of those businesses, um, if combined properly, actually goes up. That's healthcare. Consumer. You know, this has been an interesting period for consumer. Ever since the start of the pandemic, you saw some businesses in the consumer world skyrocket. You know, if you were selling wings, if you were selling pizza, if you were selling drive-through smoothies, you had the best year ever. Um, if you had a sit-down restaurant, you probably struggled. Hmm. And so on the follow understanding how consumer tastes have changed is a big part of our analysis and i think it means that we're a little bit more conservative on the sector today that being said i think there's going to be a time where everybody should be sort of moving uh, uh, faster in consumer getting a little bit more aggressive i just don't think it's quite yet uh, what does well in recessions what does well when things go bump in the night in consumer or consumer staples. As it turns out, Oreos, you know, solo cups do pretty well in a recession, tend to be recession resistant. Um, and so we've looked at businesses that are consumer staple like um, that we think are defensive in a period where things are, are I think, potentially troubled.
finally, industrials. You know, um, depending on the the type of industrial business, you can see some cyclicality. Um, while timing where the trough is is always hard. At the end of the day, what you look for are businesses that have niche products. Those products clearly need to exist. They've got, if possible, blue chip consistent customer bases, long-term customer relationships, high margins, great free cash flow dynamics, and um, tenure. You know, finding an industrial business that's only been around for the last three or four or five years means that you haven't quite seen what happens when uh, the economy goes bump in the night. Uh, you don't quite know how it's going to react when you know if a crisis were to hit. And so, um, you know, if a business is twenty or thirty years old, old at least we can see how did it do in two thousand one, how did it do in two thousand eight, how did it react to economic shrinkage. Hmm. What's and an example of an industrial business? We own a company that manufactures doors. Okay. Manufacturers. Okay. You know, um, factories, manufacturers, they could have, they can manufacture little widgets, niche parts. They can manufacture doors. They could uh, be in the logistics world. So all of the above. Gotcha. Tend to be relatively cyclical in nature. But again, this is the beauty of buying small businesses. Um, you can invest into a macroeconomic environment that is cyclical, but get the micro right. And so your business, because it's got a better product and better management, is taking share even in a down cycle. That's how last year we have a business that manufactures doors, although the, the industry as a whole, you saw a lot of those public stocks shrink last year. Our business grew mm. and you got to attribute that totally to the quality of our investment team in terms of picking an asset, the quality of our operators and partners in terms of helping to manage that business, uh, the quality of our post-transaction value creation team and the levers that they're pulling to make sure that we're actually increasing productivity, increasing margin, decreasing scrap rates. These are all the kinds of things that, that, you know, frankly matter when you're, when you're building a business. Right. So for someone who purchases businesses that manufacture doors is part of your strategy to find another business that needs doors. And, you know, do you kind of like duplicate that across the other sectors? Like you buy a business that could kind of complement the others in your portfolio, or are you kind of strictly looking at, okay, this one-off deal here is a great deal. And we're just going to focus on that. And it doesn't really matter if we have others that, uh, complemented or can be cross-marketed or whatever? You know, um, the reason why if you own a business, you're not going to want to buy another business to buy from that business mm -hmm. is because at the end of the day, customer diversity matters. And if you have a business and you're me, you know, and you're only getting money from one client, the enterprise value of that business is not going to be great as a function of, of how much profit it's actually creating. So the multiple, that you would use to multiply by its EBITDA or profitability is going to be low. Why? Because what if that customer goes out of business, all of a sudden you got no business either. Mm -hmm. And so um, we don't focus so much on buying businesses that can buy from our other businesses. Now, of course we think about 
you know, making sure that things are complementary within our portfolio, um, shared services arrangement, et cetera. You want to make sure that you're operating companies as efficiently as, as, as possible. And where we see, see opportunities, we're going to take them, right? So we're not, you know, we're not leaving money on the table. But at the end of the day, um, for every business, you want a blue chip customer base. You want it to be diverse. You want your revenues, uh, your, your, your um, uh, largest customer as a percentage of your total revenue or total cost of goods sold. You want that to be relatively low, not high. It doesn't matter how long the relationship is. Why? Because stuff happens. And so diversity actually is something that we, we pride ourselves in, not just in terms of people, but also in terms of you know customer bases, businesses, et cetera. Gotcha. So right now, where we are is the baby boomers, I guess, begin to retire. You know, their wealth, including their businesses and real estate, are being passed down to the younger generation. Uh, in your opinion, how can this transfer of wealth be leveraged to uh, address the wealth gap that we, you know, previously uh, tackled or, or discussed? Well, I, I think you know th there's there's a few ways to think about that or solve that. Um, at the end of the day, you know, any, any boomer is going to have money that's managed. Who's managing it? Hmm. What we know is that women who manage money tend to be more likely investors into women-owned businesses, um, tend to hire more women, tend to better com compensate women. Um, and it's the same thing if people were black and brown. All right, somebody who is a minority, somebody who is black is more likely to be supportive with their dollars and their time of the black community than anybody else. And so, you know, as you think about wealth management at large, um, there are plenty of black wealth managers out there. And I can tell you that black wealth managers tend to be a little more thoughtful about finding uh, black owned funds and black owned funds tend to be a little bit more thoughtful about hiring black and brown people and compensating them well and investing with black and brown run or black and brown owned businesses and black and brown owned businesses tend to be better about hiring black and brown people compensating them well and buying raw materials from black or brown businesses and at the end of the day all you've got is people that make up the economic basis of our community that are now better compensated. Right. So th th there is a direct connection between these two things. Who manages money and where that money ends up at the end of the day, whose pocket it ends up in, and who's getting a fair shot um, at the American dream. Hmm. And that's at the end of the day what this is all about. Right. Right. You know, we're not talking about a zero sum game. What we're talking about is whether or not the American dream is real for everybody. And I think in order for it to be real for everybody, we need to make sure that opportunity, although talent is going to be all over the place, right? But we need to make sure that talented people have opportunities to succeed. Capital, for capital, its formation, uh, uh, capital movement is a core, core part of that. Hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, capital is the lifeblood of small businesses. Small businesses don't get off the ground without capital. Right. Right. Well said. 
Well, Eric, you know, we've come to the end of our interview. Definitely wanted to thank you for your time and your oh, of course, and for sharing about your business, you know, what you're working on. Um, anyone who is, um, you know, interested in learning more, you know, about you or your fund, where can they, where can they go? Trident.co, not .com, .co, Trident.co. Um, we've got a website, we've got different news articles. I publish an annual letter. Um, you know, we've got, we've got a Twitter, although we, we, we haven't been as active as we'd like to be, but um, check out Trident.co. Uh, give us a ring, give us a call. We're always happy to spend a little bit of time. Awesome. Thanks again for your time, Eric. You have a great rest of the day. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tony. See you. Take care.